Welcome to Music History Monday for August 29th, 2022. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is Bird. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. We mark the birth on August 29, 1920, 102 years ago today, of the alto saxophonist and composer Charlie Parker. The trumpet player and one-time member of Charlie Parker's quintet, Miles Davis, 1926 to 1991, famously said, quote, You can tell the history of jazz in four words. Louis Armstrong, Charlie Parker, unquote. Miles Davis never minced words, and he does not mince them here. Along with Louis Armstrong, Charlie Parker was and remains the most innovative, influential, and technically brilliant jazz musician to have yet lived. However, before moving on to Parker, we have one other piece of date-related musical business. Yes, I know, I know! I am most aware that having broached the subject of Charlie Parker, it behooves us, out of awe and respect, to get on with his story. But along with Parker's birth, one other event occurred on this date that demands, demands our attention. So please, allow me this brief excursion. On this day in music history, stupid. On August 29, 1977, 45 years ago today, three people were arrested in Memphis after trying to steal Elvis Presley's body. As I think we all know, or should know at least, Elvis died while sitting on the toilet of his mansion in Memphis, Graceland, on Tuesday, August 16th. He was laid to rest at Memphis's Forest Hill Cemetery in a huge flower-strewn mausoleum two days later, on August 18th, 1977. On August 29th, 11 days after Presley's interment, the following appeared in the New York Times. Quote, Early this morning, three men entered the cemetery over a back wall and made their way toward the white marble mausoleum. The men apparently became suspicious and turned to leave, the police said. They were arrested. No charges were filed immediately against the men, and the police refused to identify them. Unquote. The men had broken into the cemetery, presumably, to steal Elvis Presley's corpse. We should all be struck by two bits of information in that brief report in the New York Times. One, that the men apparently became suspicious and turned to leave. Suspicious of what, we rightly ask. And two, why weren't they charged or identified? And for our information, they were never identified. These questions were not answered definitively until 2002, 25 years after the purported grave robbery gone wrong had occurred. Here's the story.
Immediately after Elvis's death, his family requested that he be allowed to be buried on the grounds of his Graceland estate. But the Memphis Board of Health said no. Whispered inquiries were made, money changed hands, and a Shelby County deputy named Bill Talley was hired by the Presley family to stage a fake corpse snatch. The hoax achieved precisely what it was intended to achieve. It convinced Shelby County officials and the Memphis Board of Health that the body of Elvis Presley and, for that matter, the corpse of his mother Gladys should be moved to Graceland for security reasons. On October 3, 1977, Elvis's and his mother's coffins were moved to Graceland. Two years later, Elvis's father Vernon died and was buried next to his wife and son. The so-called Meditation Garden, where the family rests today, is an absolutely must-see on any visit to Graceland. If we want to see the Meditation Garden featuring Elvis's grave, we'll have to pay, and pay handsomely, as admission at Graceland is not cheap. Ticket prices for Graceland range today from $27 to $196 per person, the latter for the ultimate VIP tour. But we're sure, we're sure, the Presley family wasn't thinking about filthy lucre when they moved Elvis's corpse in its 900-pound copper coffin from a public cemetery to a private pay-per-view facility. Or am I just being naive here? On to the bird, Charlie Parker. The nickname. Parker was and is known universally as Bird, though the origins of that nickname remain in question. The story the band leader J. McShann, 1916-2006, loved to tell is as follows. In the fall of 1940, the 20-year-old Parker was on tour with McShann's orchestra, headed for a gig in Lincoln, Nebraska. The car, or bus, the story changes, that Parker was in struck and killed a chicken, which was, to no one's surprise, in the process of crossing the road. According to the story, Parker insisted that the car stop. He got out, retrieved the dead chicken, no doubt in a state of some physical disrepair due to its encounter with the car. Parker plucked it and had it cooked for his dinner. His bandmates subsequently called him Yardbird, slang for chicken, which was eventually shortened to bird. Frankly, more believable is the fact that as a youngster, Parker had an insatiable appetite for chicken and thus received the appellation from friends and family alike of yard bird, which was eventually shortened to bird. Whatever its origins, the nickname bird fit Charlie Parker like that proverbial glove. As a saxophonist, he didn't just sing like a bird, he soared like a bird, and not just any bird at that. I would suggest a Rupel's Griffin Vulture, which can fly slash soar higher than any other member of the bird kingdom, 37,000 feet high. Brief biography. 
He was born 102 years ago today at 852 Freeman Avenue in Kansas City, Kansas, and raised across the Missouri River in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, is anyone out there interested in a fun, profitable project? The house Parker was born in at 852 Freeman Avenue in Kansas City, Kansas, was demolished long ago, along with most of the neighboring houses. According to the real estate site Trulia, which I consulted for this post, quote, For sale, 20 vacant lots over two blocks located in an area prime for new development. The 20 lots will be sold as a package. The lots include the birthplace lot, 852 Freeman, of famous jazz musician Charlie Parker. Family wants his lot to be devoted as a memorial park in his memory. Two lots contain houses that will need to be removed. Builders, this could be a fun, profitable project." Unquote. Oh yes, what fun. Parker was an only child. His father, Charles Parker Sr., was a part-time pianist, singer, and dancer, and a full-time railroad chef. His mother, Adelaide, or Addie Bailey, worked nights at the local Western Union office. She was of mixed race, African-American and Native American, specifically Choctaw, a native people from what is now Alabama and Mississippi. Young Charlie began playing the saxophone at the age of 11. When he was 14, his mother bought him a new alto saxophone. He joined his Lincoln High School band, and something clicked. And we're not talking about the pads on Charlie's new horn. Many years later, in an interview with his fellow alto saxophone player, Paul Desmond, Parker told him that he began practicing up to 15 hours a day and continued to do so for the next three or four years. That sort of practice schedule left little time for school and made for unhappy neighbors as well. Parker dropped out of high school in December of 1935 at the age of 15. He joined the Musicians' Union that same month, and by the fall of 1936, the now 16-year-old Parker was touring the region in a band. By 1938, the now 18-year-old Charlie Parker was touring with the aforementioned J. McShann Orchestra. McShann was the real deal and Parker made his first recordings as a member of the J. McShann Orchestra on August 9, 1940. Now, by the time Parker made those recordings, he had, by his own admission, already had his eureka moment. According to Gary Giddings, writing in his Visions of Jazz, The First Century, Oxford University Press, 1998, this is what Parker later said, quote, I was jamming in a chilly house on 7th Avenue between 139th and 140th. For our information, that would have been Dan Wall's Chili House in Harlem in New York City. It was December 1939. Now I'd been getting bored with the stereotyped changes, meaning harmonies, that were being used all the time at the time, and I kept thinking there's bound to be something else. I could hear it in my head sometimes, but I couldn't play it. Well, that night, 
I was working over the song Cherokee, and as I did, I found that by using the higher intervals of a chord as a melody line and backing them with appropriately related chord changes, I could play the thing I'd been hearing. I came alive." Unquote. Please bear with me, because I'd like to at least attempt to explain what Parker is saying. Let's say a jazz musician is improvising on a C dominant seventh chord, abbreviated as being a C7 in harmonic notation. In earlier jazz, an improvising musician would focus on the four pitches contained in that C7 chord, a C, E, G, and B flat, as the principal pitches in their improvisation. But that harmony, that C7 chord, can be extended upwards to create a more complex harmony. For example, a harmony called a C dominant 13th sharp 11th chord, consisting of the pitches C, E, G, B flat, D, F sharp, A. Parker is saying that by basing an improvisation on the higher intervals of a chord, in this case, the pitches B flat, D, F sharp, and A, he could play the things he'd been hearing in his head. Such an improvisation assumes an extended, much more complex approach to harmony and a frankly more dissonant approach to melody, a more complex and dissonant approach than anything one would hear in jazz to that time, meaning in New Orleans jazz or swing. And though Charlie Parker was at the cutting edge of this new music, we'd observe that by the early 1940s, he wasn't the only jazz musician hearing something new in his inner ear. So were the trumpet players, John Burke's Dizzy Gillespie, 1917 to 1993, and Howard McGee, 1918 to 1987, and the pianist Thelonious Monk, 1917 to 1982. The harmonically complex, melodically dissonant, aesthetically esoteric, high-energy small group jazz Charlie Parker pioneered became known as bebop bebop, or modern jazz. Charlie Parker's epiphany at Dan Wall's Chili House in December 1939 notwithstanding, the origins of bebop lie in the same progressive 20th century modernist impulse that drove contemporary concert music, an intensification of expression and virtuosity, an expansion rhythmically, melodically, and harmonically of the actual musical materials employed in the music, with the upshot being an elite music that placed far greater demands on its listeners. In the hands of modern jazz musicians, jazz ceased for the first time to be a variety of dance music, the primary purpose of which was to entertain. Charlie Parker considered himself a serious musician first, last, and always, and refused ever to play the role of an entertainer. When he performed, he stood utterly still, his focus absolute on the music at hand, his eyes staring into the distance above the heads of his audience. According to the American writer, literary critic, and scholar Ralph Ellison, 1914 to 1994, quote, no jazz man, not even Miles Davis, 
struggled harder to escape the entertainer's role than Charlie Parker, unquote. Parker's bandmate, the trumpet player Howard McGee, drew this distinction between Parker and his longtime friend and bandmate, Dizzy Gillespie, quote, See, Dizzy was a comedian. He's funny. He likes to be funny and laugh and so forth. Bird wasn't like that. He was a serious man. And he figured, when you hit that bandstand, you're supposed to be serious. You ain't supposed to be making people laugh and all that bullshit, like Dizzy would be doing. And he would get mad when he'd see Dizzy do that." Unquote. Parker's addictions, heroin, alcohol, tobacco, food, and sex, would rob him of his skills and put him in an early grave at the age of 34, which will be discussed in tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes post. But while his musical fire burned, it burned with dazzling intensity. The recordings Parker made between 1945 and 1950 are among the very greatest and most influential in the history of jazz. Those recordings, along with the paradox of Charlie Parker's magnificently disciplined music and grossly undisciplined life, will be the subject of tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes post. Until then, thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.